All right. Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 35 this morning. Parables of the Kingdom, part three. Matthew chapter 13, 31 through 35. We're continuing to make our way through the gospel of Matthew and we're in chapter 13, which kind of shifted gears. We're in the middle of parables The parables are what Jesus is doing in the parables is he's speaking truths about the kingdom that are shrouded in everyday stories. That's the idea. That's a parable. It's a story that that hides or conceals the truth about the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. If you remember back in verse 10, if you look at Matthew, Matthew 13, verse 10, just kind of follow there. The disciples came to Jesus and said, hey, why are you talking to everybody in parables? Matthew being the first book of the New Testament, by the way. If you remember back in verse 10, he says to what they said, well, Jesus, why are you talking to everybody in parables? Why are you talking to everybody in stories? Why don't you just clearly explain things like you do to us when we're alone? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. That's a hard truth. Why? For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand and so there was a heart condition that kept them from hearing God and obeying God and loving God. And, and the Lord wasn't going to cast the precious promises, the precious mysteries of the kingdom to people who do not, would not value them. And then we see again in verse 34, Matthew, Matthew, the author, he says, and all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. In other words, that was his standard operating procedure is that he would just walk to the crowds and say these stories and then walk away and they wouldn't have meaning. They wouldn't understand what was going on. So on the one hand, Jesus is speaking in parables to the masses. And yet that would conceal the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And yet when he got alone with his disciples and believers and those who had ears to hear and hearts to understand those who hungered and thirst for righteousness, those who just, the Lord was doing a work in their hearts. Guess what happened? He started to explain those things. So those who had, those who had faith, he gave more. And not only more, abundantly more, he poured it out on them. And he pours it out on you this morning. As you have that mustard seed of faith where you come to the Lord and just say, Lord, give me an understanding. And, he, and I believe in the Lord. And he, he begins to culminate this deep understanding within you about him and his kingdom and his ways and his rule and his reign and all the things of the kingdom. And so, so far we've gone over just two of the parables. I know we're going slow, but these are important. Jesus said, I think to, to the disciples in, in the first one, he says, I think it is in Mark's gospel. He said, listen, if you don't understand this first parable, you're not going to understand the rest. And so there's an importance to understanding like the sower of the parable of the wheat, because it's a key to understanding how all the others are interpreted. And we want to know, because otherwise you get really weird theology, Really weird theology. We don't have, we, want to, we don't want to be weird. It's, I mean, it's difficult enough. We don't want to be weird. And so we went over the parable of the sower and the parable of the wheat and the tares, those first two. And again, the Lord speaking in parables is speaking in the mysteries of key, about the kingdom of heaven. Again, the kingdom of heaven, when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, how many of you heard, oh, the kingdom of heaven? It's like, well, what is that? Again, the kingdom of heaven in a very simple way can be understood as the rule and reign of God. 
the rule and reign of God in totality. And his rule and reign can be looked at in two different ways or two different aspects of it. One is very narrow, the narrow, uh, the narrow aspect of the kingdom of God, where it's actually people who are submitted and angelic beings who are submitted to the rule and reign of God. Those would be believers and angels who are under the submission of, of God. So that's like the near, the kingdom of God in its truest sense. But then there's the kingdom of God in its broader sense, where it includes everything and everyone, not only those who believe, but those who don't, not only angelic beings, but demonic beings. He is ruler and reigning over the whole universe. And yet there's part of his kingdom that is out of whack that will be brought into balance as, as the parables are explaining. And so when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, there's that, there's that broad sense and that narrow sense of the aspect of, of the kingdom of heaven. So in the first two parables, Jesus paints a picture of that broad sense of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. In the first parable, we saw the parable of the sower. Jesus is, is going into the world and he's preaching about the kingdom and, and the ground that the, the seed went into represents the hearts of men. And we saw that most men... Mankind rejects the kingdom of God. They don't want to have anything to do it. They're within the kingdom, but they're not submitted to God. We see that. And only a few believe. And we see this true in all the other, other ways that Jesus speaks of the kingdom. The narrow, the wide path and the narrow path, right? And, and so for various reasons, we, we see that there's a, an, an opposition to the kingdom of God. And it starts within our own hearts. There's an opposition to the lordship of Jesus Christ within the hearts of men. And he comes and he speaks of his kingdom. His spirit calls people to repent. He talks to us. That's what the spirit does. He, he convicts people of sin, of righteousness, and the judgment of come, to come. That's what the spirit is doing now in the world. And we take that right now and we say, forget about it. Or yes, I'll follow you, but first let me. Or I love you, Lord, but I don't want to. Get, I don't want to have persecution. I don't love you that much. Those, it's a very loose paraphrase of the first parable. <laughs> and some people, we all struggle with that to some degree. But an ongoing life of just denying Jesus in those ways, putting the world above the Lord, the cares of the world, the love of riches, the fear of self, the self-preservation above losing our life for the Lord, the, all those types of things. And so three of the four of those scenarios were those that didn't bear fruit. And Jesus says, so there's opposition from the human heart, but few do. Few receive, a few go on to bear fruit. In other words, they receive the life that God has and it grows within them. Enter into fellowship with, with God. They're born again. And so the parable, that first parable speaks of the opposition from the human heart. But not only that, he goes on to the second parable where a, a, a farmer came and he cast good seed. But then right along that, an enemy came in the night and cast his weeds among the wheat. And they were growing up together. And you couldn't tell the difference until the fruit started to be developed in the wheat. And the idea was just kind of like one of those false wheat things out there. So in the idea there is there's opposition that the enemy puts false believers among true believers, whatever there's a work of God and he's doing a real thing. He's also going to put his operatives within there 
So Jesus wants his disciples to know, listen, you're going to have opposition from the human heart. Some will believe, most will not. And even within the church, and you see this played out through the whole New Testament teaching, there's going to be false teachers. There's going to be people who are saying they're the real deal and they're not. It's going to be, they're going to be planted and it's so subtle. You can't tell until the fruit starts to come about. And Jesus is talking about that. He says, you'll know a tree by its fruit. They're indistinguishable until that point, the fruit being character of Christ or not following the Lord or not, not perfectly church. Amen. (laughs) None of us are there yet. If you are again, you're in the wrong church, but Jesus explained how there was opposition from the kingdom of God by the enemy planting the devil, planting those who look like believers among true believers to choke out their fruitfulness, to deceive them and all that kind of stuff that's going on. We saw that Jesus himself at the harvest, which is the judgment would send his angels and his angels would separate the wheat from the chaff. He would separate he would, he's going to clear out the nonsense. So Jesus wanted to wants everybody to know that while this is going on, this is the current state. That's not going to stay that day. There is a day of reckoning coming. God is going to make the narrow kingdom, the real kingdom. The other kingdom is going to be cast out into outer darkness. You see that in revelation where it talks about outside are the, and he lists all those characteristics of non-believers. And so at that time, there's going to be a final reckoning. So we saw in that parable, the parable of the wheat, uh, wheat in the weeds, the way in which the kingdom of God is the kingdom of heaven is under assault by the evil one through infiltration and false believers among true believers. Don't we see that going on today? Really interesting. Now we skipped around last week. Just wanted you to know. Because what Jesus started to do is he'd, he'd say something and then he'd go talk about something else and he'd come back and explain it to his disciples when they were alone. He did that with the first parable. So instead of me just reading it as is, what I did is he explained the parable of the wheat and tares and then he tells two more parables to the people. Well, he tells the parable of the wheat and tares. He says two more parables. Then he goes, he's alone with his disciples and explains the parable of the wheat and tares, right? So I just kind of went and did the explanation so we understood what it was. But I skipped the last two last week. I was hoping to get to it. I didn't. We're going to come back to that right now. So Jesus has just given the masses the parable of the wheat and the tares. He hasn't given the explanation, although we know it from last week, right? And so we pick up in verse 31. He just talked about the wheat and the tares and then he immediately goes and he put another parable before them saying the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its branch. Now, one of the common uh, things we are seeing in all these parables, if, if you just look, if you just read it, and this is what you do when you're, when you're trying to understand the Bible, you just, you don't want to figure out what it, what it means. You want to figure out what it's saying. <laughs> okay. What are they saying? What are the words that are repeated? What are the phrases that are repeated? Where are the ideas that are being repeated? Cause Jesus is not, he has, he's actually trying to say something. And what we see in each of these is something that's hidden, something that is later revealed. Right? So the seed gets cast on human hearts, but we don't know what happens until a little time passes. Then we find out 
what was in their heart or what wasn't right. Then you go into the next one. The seed was cast. You can't tell the difference between the two until the fruit comes. Something was hidden. Then it's revealed. Now he comes to this tree, mustard seed, insignificant, small, hidden. Then all of a sudden it's large and it shows a lot of what's going on. Make sense? So what does that mean? Now here again, we have something that's hidden and insignificant later shows itself more fully. It's a parable and the Lord is speaking about the kingdom of heaven. He wants his disciples to understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. Which kingdom do you think he's talking about? Just the just believers or is he talking about the kingdom, his entire rule and reign? The, this, the context seems to be his entire rule and reign over humanity. What's the war going on here? What's going on? And that's what's going on here. Now, a common interpretation of this parable is that it's about the kingdom of heaven beginning and insignificance. And that the gospel is preached and, and more and more people believe until everybody believes. And finally, it culminates in the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. That would be an, an all millennial view of, of the scriptures, I think, partly. And some of some great believers believe that. Um, I do not. I don't think that's what this is talking about because this goes against what the whole context of what we've been talking about is. It's not what Jesus is talking about. Although there is truth in that there's truth in the claim that the kingdom of God is going to grow to a place where it just overtakes everything. Amen. We, are, we know that, but it's not by everybody going, yeah, I receive it. And here we go. And we're all, you know, we're all loving Jesus. Do you see that going on right now? Most people don't love the Lord. They don't receive the gospel just as the parables say. And so it's not true that the kingdom is going to increase, increase and increase until everybody believes. And then it's going to culminate in the return of Jesus Christ at some time. That's not what we see in scripture. As we read last Sunday, that one day everything is going to come under the submission of the Lord, but he's going to force the hand of the world in it. He's going to come back. And, and ladies, are you reading Revelation right now? Seals are broken. Got the bowls of wrath, right? And all that stuff is going on. The Lord is pouring out his wrath on the earth and he's going to come back and take it by force. What is his? That's what's going on. It's not because everybody responds to the gospel and it culminates in his return. No, most reject. And then he pours out his wrath on the world, but he comes back and takes it by force. And those who are his believe till the end. So this is not, that's not what this parable is talking about. It's not talking about the kingdom continuing to grow to a point where everybody's going to be involved in it. The context of the parable is not so much about the kingdom's continual influence and growth, as it is about the opposition it faces as that inner kingdom presses out, as the gospel goes out. There's a resistance to those within the kingdom of God, within humanity, within the demonic and angelic realms. So opposition from human hearts. Yes. False believers among true believers. Yes. And I believe now Jesus is pointing out not the natural growth of the kingdom, but an abnormal growth, a strange growth within the broad kingdom, a superficial growth that looks like it could be attributed to real growth and real influence all under the name of Christianity. 
I think that's what he's talking about here. Now, different people did see it differently. If you see it differently, praise God, I don't. And I'll, I'll kind of share why. But Jesus starts off by saying that the kingdom of God is it's like a mustard seed, right? And so it begins in insignificance. You don't understand what the full effects of it are, but it grows. And so we see that. We like that. But it, it's an untypical of mustard plants. Mustard plants kind of get the size of this pulpit, right? But he's talking about a mustard plant that grows into a tree where birds are having like a party inside, right? So much so that the birds, verse 32, have a place to nest. And that should tip you off, if you've been reading the parables, that there's something different about this tree. The birds in the air in the first parable symbolize what? The birds that came and snatched the word out of mouth were, was who? Satan. This is why Jesus says, if you don't understand the first, you're not going to understand the rest. It's the key to understanding the rest of them. So you've got the kingdom of God with birds in the branches. That's what Jesus is talking about. That fits in the scope of what has been going on with the Pharisees, with everything. And so there, there's a term in biblical interpretation called expositional constancy. I know you guys enjoy this kind of stuff, but th that means that if you have a symbol in scripture of something, it usually maintains its same understanding throughout the whole thing. Otherwise you get weird. Okay, just, just let you know. So if the birds in the air, in the immediate context, they mean Satan in, ver in the first one, what do you think it means in this one? Same thing. Unless Jesus has just deliberately told you it doesn't. So the birds of the air are the birds of the air. Now, how many of you are familiar with the story of Daniel? I know I'm jumping around with you. Daniel, remember just like dust off your old Testament hat, right? Remember Daniel? Well, remember Nebuchadnezzar? He had a dream and his kingdom was like a tree, a giant tree that went all the way up. And so a tree often symbolizes a kingdom, right? And if you notice in his dream, what happened? It was so big, so large, went all the way up to heavens that what happened? The birds of the air were able to nest in there and also the beasts of the field. And so this Jesus is using this picture to describe a kingdom, People would know, but he changes the meaning of the birds because we know that because verse one says that. So in Daniel's thing, he's just, I believe he's just saying, listen, your kingdom's going to be so amazing. Nebuchadnezzar It's going to be so God's going to give you this kingdom. It's going to be so awesome that birds are going to be taken care of. Animals are going to be taken care of. People are going to be taken care of. There's going to be so much under your authority. And I think he's talking about birds and animals and people. It's just a massive kingdom and it's going to get chopped down. And anyways, there's, there's the story of Daniel. And so we know that Jesus is using this picture when he's talking, everybody be clicking because they're Jewish, right? Like, oh yeah, that big old bush that goes abnormally large. So the kingdom of God is like that, but we got a problem. That the birds of the air aren't just isn't just a symbolism for lots of things. He already gave you the, the interpretation in the first one. He's telling you there's demonic activity nestled within the branches of the kingdom. You've got birds in the tree. And this is exactly what is happening in every single one of the parables. You see that? And so what Jesus seems to be saying here is that Satan... 
in the, uh, is that Satan in the kingdom of heaven in the broad sense is ill is being in, he's infiltrating the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's the idea there. Just as he has false believers planted, he's also got a false religious system. It seems to be while the inner kingdom is growing, the enemy is at work to undermine God's rule and reign. And he's doing so in part under the banner of Christianity that this seems like it's all Christianity. But what happens is within that, it's not. There's false religion going on, false leaders, all this kind of weird stuff. So there's a lot that looks like it's part of the kingdom of heaven, the true kingdom of heaven, but it isn't. I think that's what Jesus is pointing out here. The kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of God is, the, is that in that broader sense is facing opposition. First, from the hearts of men. Secondly, by the enemy planting false believers. And so there's an intentional undermining of the kingdom of God going on. The mustard plant shouldn't be that big. It should not be a tree. It should not be able to house birds. It seems there's an abnormal superficial growth going on. And I think that this points to the fact that so much of what has gone on through history under the banner of Christianity has nothing to do with it. And he wants them to know that that's what's going on. The kingdom of God in the broad sense is full of false religion led by false leaders, teaching false doctrine, producing false believers, all, all of them claiming to be under the kingdom of God under Christianity and they're resting comfortably in that system. I think that's what's going on here. I think that's what Jesus is pointing out. Remember that right after this parable, remember I told you he, he does the parable of the wheat. He does the parable of the tares and the wheat. Then he goes straight into this one, straight into another one. That's just like it. And then he goes back and explains uh, that God's going to sort it all out. Make sense. So this, that's the context. I think he's describing the infiltration of the kingdom of God by the enemy as the kingdom of God grows and eventually God will sort it out. So we have those who claim to be Christians operating under the umbrella of Christianity. I'll just do some low hanging fruit like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. When, you know, to the average person, people wouldn't, if they claim to be Christians and yet I think to the average person, you're not able to discern why they aren't. You can't fight against it. You don't understand why. And yet they claim to be under that umbrella. But when they, what they believe is all boiled down to it's, it's a workspace salvation. It's I will ascend. I will do X, Y, and Z works in order to be saved. It's not he descended and I believe in his finished work. It's I will ascend. Sure. Jesus is in the mix, but it's ultimately I'm the one who produces salvation. That's if you, if you pull it together, like the Mormons, for example, and and they're not the big threat here in our culture, but the Mormons have Jesus's name in their title, the church of Jesus Christ for Latter-day Saints. Hello. Right. And the church is huge and it's grandiose and they have apostles and they have temples. And their organization is filled with religious people who on the surface seem to have Christian values and virtues. Correct. A lot of nice people. And I'm not beating up on the nice people. 
Yet the church is a lie. Their gospel is a false gospel. It is a lie. Their Jesus is Satan's brother. That's not on their front of the website. God, the father has a wife. And if you get married in one of their temples one day, you can enter the celestial kingdom. You can have your own planet. And with your wife, you can populate that planet with spirit babies who will eventually be the people. And you will rule over that planet just as our father, God and mother, God rule over this planet now. That's what they teach among other stuff. Yet to the average person, you can't tell them why, why they're not they're Mormons are not Christians. They say they believe in Jesus Christ. They say they, you know, they're Christians. They have somewhat a moral structure and values and all this kind of stuff. But they have worked really hard in recent years to wipe all this weird stuff off the front page of their website. And you will have to dig deep into their archives to find their doctrines. They do that on purpose because they know it's weird. And what they want is the family values thing that everybody desires. Cause you want to be a good person, don't you? And that's on purpose. That's a tactic of the enemy. It's not true. It's deceptive. And then they pull you in and pull you into relationships. And then in the end, they teach you the doctrines. Jesus goes the other way. No one comes to the father except through me. Listen, you don't become, become part of the church through the double doors. You come become part of the church through the door. I am the way I am the truth. I am the life. And you better have the right Jesus. So a lot of people are deceived and we should pray and we should study and show ourselves approved. Not that we can beat them in a mental match or a verse throwing contest, but that we can give them the truth and God in his grace might pull them out just as he pulled us out. Amen. I just give that one example. Cause it's, it's all over the place. Then there's the Roman Catholic church. That is when everybody does an interview on, on TV about what Christians think, that's what the world thinks. What does the Roman Catholic church think? Again, it's a works based salvation. You remember the Roman church was the, the church, right? It came out of Jerusalem and continued on and got weird as the Lord said it would. There's salvation. If I can just bring it down to simplicity, because I don't have time to go into all the doctrines is faith in Jesus Christ and the sacraments equal salvation. Taking communion stuff behind, you know, when you die, you got to go to mass, all this type of stuff and salvation. Those things equal salvation. That is a, anything Jesus and is a work salvation. Can Roman, are there, are there Roman Catholics that are born again? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are that have put their faith in Jesus. Amen. But it's in spite of the doctrines that the churches teaches, not because of it. I know I'm making friends right now. And the Protestant church is perfect. 
So let's move on. <laughs> Save the best for last. Unless I point the finger and not examine ourselves, the Protestant church, man, what in the world is going on here? We're all over the place from our light shows and fog machine worship to the seeker sensitive. Don't mention repentance or hell ever churches that rely upon polling and questionnaires and data to determine what is taught and what is not that is happening. It has been happening for a long time. They're polling the culture to see what you'll go to church to hear. And then they do that and they build programs around what you want as opposed to what he says. On the other hand, there's the theologically liberal church on, on the other end of the spectrum where we have the total denial of the validity, validity of scripture, the embracing of homosexual and transsexuals in the pulpit in the name of love and acceptance of God. Notice love and acceptance. Those are themes of the kingdom. Are they not? But what have they done with God's love? What have they done with the acceptance? There's a context to it. They've twisted it to incorporate their own selfishness. And this is what the human heart does. This is what every one of us does. When we hear a, a Bible verse, we read it and we go, well, that doesn't match us up with what I'm doing. I think Jesus meant this instead. Well, what happens when those people who think that way get put into leadership? The church goes that way. And you think that the enemy's just going, wow, that just magically appeared. No, he's orchestrating this stuff. We have social justice churches. Listen, anytime, you know, you've got some people are getting mistreated. It's wrong. Amen. No matter what color you are, or wherever you are, I'm not lightening the load on certain people and all that kind of stuff. Listen, sin is sin. But there was a guy that was talking about just, a, just there was a, a, a black preacher just talking, a, a mega church in Texas talking about the justification is by, by, uh, sorry, the church, was it, I don't want to get it wrong, but basically it's justification in social justice is the gospel. And I understand what he means, but that's confusing. I know you don't understand what he means, but you'll have to have fun with that. But I'm saying is people are taking the church and they're using it for political or social or all these types of things. And they're motivating people's hates or dislikes or frustrations. And they're making the church the avenue to have those done. Is that what Jesus did with all the oppression and frustration and the mistreatment that the Christians experience? We've got to look to our leader but this is on purpose. We have churches that are shaping are shaped by the culture and politics that deny Jesus is the only way to be saved. They deny the existence of heaven, the reality of an eternal hell. They teach that the old Testament and the stories in there are myths. That Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And it goes on and on and on. Protestantism. And I haven't even touched the surface. And by the way, we are no perfect church right here at CCF. I am imperfect. Amen. That's enough. 
excommunication. No, just kidding. <laughs> By the way, the true church, again, is not found through the double doors. It is found through the door, through him. How does that happen? The spirit of God convicts you of your sin. He deals with sin. A church that doesn't preach that is not the church. Because that's what Jesus said. First words out of his mouth. Same as the one as John the Baptist. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's through the door of repentance. Through Lord, you're right. I'm totally dead and I'm lost. And you are the savior. You died for my sin and you rose again to give me life. I have nothing unless you act. I'm totally lost. That's bankruptcy of soul, poor in spirit. And God says to that person, I respond. And he comes in and, and the, the total absolute sufficiency of the blood of Christ cleanses you from all your sins. There is no Jesus and it's Jesus alone. Amen. It, it is finished. It's him. That's the church. And by the way, the church means called out ones. We're called out from the world. We're called out from the old life. We're called into his kingdom, that inner kingdom. That's what that is. We believe in his death. We believe in his resurrection and it translates because we've been born again and there's new life within us and it's lived out. Yes. imperfectly, day to day, but the kingdom of heaven is full of imposters, false religions, false leaders, false believers. And Jesus will one day sort his kingdom out at the harvest at the judgment. Listen, big tree, lots of birds is this point. Amen. But guess what? The kingdom is going to begin small. But one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he will hand that kingdom over to his father. That inner purified kingdom. And today is the day that you enter that kingdom. You don't want to be one of those who are forced to declare Jesus Christ is Lord. We want to do that today. Amen. Rule and reign now, Lord Jesus, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so the kingdom of God has birds. <laughs> Thank you. That's the name of my message <laughs> real quickly. And similarly, verse 33, let's do this quickly. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. Again, the imagery is something that was hidden at first and it's being revealed. And the interpretation, the popular interpretation of this again, is that it's the expanding influence of the kingdom of God. The gospel is going to go out. The leaven is the gospel and it's going to influence everything until the culmination of the return of Christ, the kingdom. we got a problem because like the birds of the air, leaven in the new Testament is a type of corruption. It's a type of corruption. The Jews would have known this. They were to leave Egypt with what kind of bread? I mean, unleavened bread. There's a picture there. Like you leave the sin in Egypt. That's the idea. A purified people an uncorrupted people. 
And we know from Matthew 16, 6, for example, along with other, other places in the New Testament, that leaven is used as a symbol of corruption. He said to him, Matthew 16, 6, said, beware or watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what this is speaking of is their, their doctrine. What they're teaching, it's going to corrupt you. Be careful what they're teaching. It will corrupt you how they're, how they're doing these things. Other examples, I'll real quickly, Mark 8, 15, that echoes this, Luke 12, 1, uh, and 13, 21. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, and Galatians 5, 9, all use that phrase. I'll just give you a quick example. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, he's correcting the Corinthian church. How many of you like to be corrected? Yeah, well, it happens. And the Corinthian church, because of their boasting and their acceptance of someone who is sexually immoral among them. Listen, someone who's sexually immoral among them. A man was sleeping with his mother-in-law or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was. Gosh, I anyways, I blocked it out. Um, but they were going, hey, aren't we accept the accepting church? Aren't we the ones who are showing the, the love and the grace of Christ? They're, we're so long-suffering. And, and Paul's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? He says, that's like leaven in a little leaven ruins the whole lump. It's going to affect everything. Get rid of the leaven. That's what he says. Deal with it. Otherwise it's going to spread and affect you all. And that's the point of Jesus's parable in Galatians five, nine, Paul's exhorting the Galatians that they were abandoning the truth. And they were following the influence of those who were persuading them to disobey the Lord and to go back under the law and all this kind of stuff. This was like leaven that was affecting them. And he calls them to repentance. And so leaven's not a good thing. And again, that principle, it's, it's, it means that there, it means it everywhere, right? So Jesus here is using leaven as a symbol of corruption. And so yeast is a type of corruption, a type of sin, and sin within the church is another way that the enemy would seek to undermine the kingdom. That's what he's saying. So as Paul said to the Corinthians, I'm going to read it. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Listen, you're a purified people, right? You follow the Lord. It's we left, we leave the sin in Egypt. Are we sinners in here? Yes. But do we let sin fester? Do we let it go on? No, we don't celebrate it. We don't celebrate what and endorse and proclaim and, and incorporate what Christ died to save us from. It's really important. He says there, he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are in leaven. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Verse eight, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See that balance there? And so I believe that leaven here is consistent with the theme of the opposition to the kingdom in the form of sin and corruption through false teaching. And that's what's going on there. So the enemy gets us in our hearts. We have hearts that are resistant towards the kingdom. We have enemies among believers and we have teachers, false teachers. We have false growth and false systems. And we have got false teaching going on in the church. This is what Jesus is talking about in these parables. And in spite of all of that, the kingdom of God goes on. Amen. So what do we do in, all, in the face of all this? Abide. 
You just hang on to Jesus. He's going to take care of it all, but you stay attached to the branch that you may remain fruitful. Amen. Look at the fruit of other people. Don't be judgmental, but be wise. Does it match up with Christ likeness? Amen. Again, it's something that is first secret, but later revealed. Really quickly, verse 34, and all these things he said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. God's letting you into upper management stuff. That's a weak way of saying it. The things that he and the father and the spirit had in their mind from before the foundations of the world about the kingdom of what it was going on, what was going to happen. He's letting his disciples into that. You were once far off, but you've been brought near. You were once slaves, but now you're sons. Now you're daughters. I call you friend. I'm sharing with you what's going on in our heart, in our relationship. See again, Christianity is not about going to church. That is part of it, but that's just an, an extension of being connected to Jesus Christ. Cause we're all connected like little branches. He's the vine and we get his life from him. And we have this relationship of love with him and the father. And then that gets extended to us and the world has the benefit of being around us. Hopefully. Amen. That we can then turn around and love them with the same love we've been given, give them the mercy we've been given, show them the love of God not compromising truth, but truth and love. Amen. So we'll go on next week. Really cool parables by the way. I'd read had if I were you because he shifts gears and he starts talking about a few different parables, the parable of the treasure in the field, the pearl of great price in the fishing net. So let me ask you as you're reading this, go ahead and read ahead. But how do you, how do you interpret those? Read ahead and, and ask yourself, who's who in this? What's the treasure? Who's the person who would give up what? Read through that. Pretty interesting stuff. It's really encouraging. So anyways, Lord God, thank you for opening up a window into your kingdom. And while we see these things play out, you are nevertheless going to prune that tree and you're going to bring it into fruitfulness. And so Lord, um, as you said to Daniel, as there was a image of a golden head and neck of silver and chest of bronze and legs of iron and feet of clay. And those represented all the kingdoms, but there was a mountain that was coming not hewn by human hands that would come and hit the foot of that monstrosity and bring it to the ground. And that mountain would grow and would never end. And that is your kingdom crushing the kingdom of man and establishing your own Lord. Thank you that we are those I pray we are in this room that have kneeled to the sun, lest you crush us, <laughs> but
but in kneeling in submitting and receiving your tremendous grace. You've graciously, as was shared in communion, you've brought us into the throne room of grace. You've brought us into a loving relationship where we are no longer adversaries with you, that we are your kids. And we have this glorious access to your throne where we fellowship with you and we can cast our cares and our sin and all these things. And you love us with an unfathomable eternal love through Jesus Christ. Help us enjoy that this week. Thank you so much. And it's in the name of Jesus we rejoice. Amen.